talk to you about adult cancers, uh, lung cancer, breast cancer, and colorectal cancers that we'll be talking about. And I'll also use this opportunity to rehash some of the common uh, cancer treatments such as surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, and immunotherapy, side effects of those therapies, and nursing care directed at those side effects. So let's start by talking about lung cancer. The risk associated with lung cancer is obviously smoking cigarettes. Um, now, people can get lung cancers without smoking cigarettes. That's definitely true. But smoking is one of the leading risk factors for developing lung cancer. And so you would want to make sure and um, encourage your patient to stop smoking if that's what was occurring. You also want to identify risk for secondhand smoke exposure and then eliminate and do whatever you could to um, reduce your patient's list, uh, risk for that. Remember that lung cancer tumors typically arise because of mutated epithelial cells that then kind of migrate into the segmental bronchi. And so that's why when we're diagnosing lung cancer, it's typically one of the first line uh, ways that we would go about diagnosing it is chest x-ray. And then if there's an area of suspicion on the chest x-ray, we would use a bronchoscopy to um, visualize any kind of bronchial involvement. And then if there is bronchial involvement, um, then we could also take that opportunity to biopsy the cancerous or abnormal cells. And um, once that biopsy, the pathology comes back on that biopsy tissue, that is how we confirm the diagnosis of lung cancer. Um, Obviously, a tumor is a tumor when we can see that there's abnormal growth in the lung, but that pathology report from the biopsy, that is really when a diagnosis of cancer is made. So um, always remember that because these other diagnostic tools are helpful at um, identifying abnormal tissue and uh, may get us closer to a diagnosis, but ultimately when it comes to, to cancer, it is the biopsy that confirms the diagnosis. And then that also is what helps us direct treatment. Now for lung cancer, that treatment is almost always going to include uh, surgery. And um, we will, if the tumor is well encapsulated, then that surgery may just be a thoracotomy with a segmental or a wedge resection where we're just taking a small amount of tissue from the lungs, the area where you have that um, cancer. Now, if it's a larger tumor that's affecting a larger amount of lung tissue, then that's when you may see a larger amount of the lobe being removed or even a lobectomy where they would do an entire lobe of the lung. Um, very rarely you would see a pneumonectomy, which is where they would remove an entire lung. Um, so you may see wedge resections, which is a small amount of lung tissue. That's where we would just do a very small amount of the affected. A segmental resection is where we're taking out one section of the lobe. And a lobectomy is where we're taking out an entire lobe. That is another therapy that we could use in COPD to really improve uh, VQ ratios um, or VQ matching. And then again, a pneumectomy is an entire lobe. The other therapies that you may see in lung cancer is radiation. And remember that radiation is being used. It interrupts the DNA of the cells in the irradiated area. And then those cells are destroyed once their DNA is um, kind of, you know, 
destroyed. Um, and so that's what radiation is being used for. Um, and the effects of chemotherapy and radiation are pretty much the same, but in radiation, the good thing is that you have much le like a less degree of nausea, vomiting, uh, bone marrow suppression, all those things. That's really just occurring if uh, the irradiated tissue is like you know happening in an area where there is bone marrow suppression is likely. So in this situation, since um, the radiation is likely to be just on the lung on one side probably. Um, or maybe both sides, but it would just, you'd really only worry about bone marrow suppression in the thorax. Um, what is likely to develop with radiation is skin burns, radiation skin burns. And remember that you want to treat those radiation skin burns just like you would a severe sunburn. It's very sensitive um, and it feels a lot like a sunburn. And so the patient's not going to want to get into a hot shower. Um, Aloe vera can be very helpful. You just want to tell them to cleanse it with gentle soap and water. You don't want any like, um, you know, scented, like really crazy um, glitter, you know, glitter lotion or anything like that. That skin is real sensitive. Aloe vera can be helpful. Um, and then temperature extremes. You don't want them to be in that hot shower or bath. You want them to uh, cleanse it with tepid water and just kind of protect it from sunlight um, and then also you want to prevent them from uh, temperature ex extremes. Like you don't want them placing ice packs or heat packs on that skin. Um, that it will improve as the skin, uh, new skin cells are replicated. Another thing with radiation is it can cause a lot of like pulmonary fibrosis in that situation with breast cancer or uh, radiation from lung cancer. You can see some pulmonary fibrosis. That's one of the long-term effects that you may see. Um, another therapy that we may use that we can talk about later is chemotherapy. And remember that because chemotherapy is not concentrated typically to one area of the body, it's almost always given systemically, you're going to see um, much more severe effects of chemotherapy where um, it is more likely to cause nausea, vomiting, widespread bone marrow suppression, um, alopecia is the more common skin change with uh, chemotherapy than it is with radiation unless the radiation is occurring to the head. So let's talk about breast cancer now. There are several risk factors associated with breast cancer. Obviously this form of cancer affects women much more commonly than it does men. There's a hormone element to this. Of course, um, you know, after menopause, a lot of women are placed on hormone therapy, and certain types of hormone therapy can really increase the risk for developing breast cancer. Excess weight like obesity or even being overweight, smoking, and a sedentary lifestyle can all increase your risk for uh, developing breast cancer. Smoking, of course, any type of smoking increases your exposure to carcinogens, and that causes that ability for those genes to, or uh, sorry, the cells to be altered. And then at that point, they just need to proliferate for cancer to develop. And then again, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene, being a carrier of those two genes really does increase your risk for breast cancer. Anymore, there's so many different types of genetic testing available to patients that they can pretty easily identify if they have a BRCA1 or BRCA, or if they are carriers of BRCA1, BRCA2, and may even, may even opt for a prophylactic mastectomy, especially if they have a family history of breast cancer. And so remember that in breast cancer, the um, 
we start by um, doing regular mammograms around the age of 45, although there's not really a telltale um, or a standard uh, start age from all of the different cancer institutes and you know centers and associations. So just know that generally speaking, most women will want to start having mammograms done annually at 45. And then if they ever see anything suspicious on a mammogram, they would um, end up doing an ultrasound of the breast with an ultrasound-guided biopsy. And that pathology on that biopsy will confirm the diagnosis of cancer. At that point, they're going to do a breast MRI to look for um, how large the tumor is. And um, they can get a pretty good idea of where the tumor's at and how large it is to then guide treatment. Now, treatment in a breast cancer, if it's a very small tumor, we can do a lumpectomy. If it's a pretty large tumor, we're almost always going to opt for a bilateral mastectomy where we remove both breasts, um, and that includes all tissue, all breast tissue, including the nipple, um, almost always. And um, while we are doing that, they will, while we're doing the mastectomy, we will remove some regional lymph nodes, um, anywhere between two to four is what you would normally see. And that way we can stage the cancer. Without um, the biopsy of those lymph nodes, we would never be able to detect stage two cancer. Stage two cancer in this situation would be if the cancer is in the breast and also has migrated into regional lymph nodes. Um, and so that's our first uh, way that we know that we are looking at something beyond stage one cancer. Um, so if that lymph node then comes back and it's positive, the pathology on the lymph node's positive, then we need to start looking for cancer in other areas of the body. We understand that at this point, the patient may not have had like an entire body scan, a CT and full body MRI to see if there's METs anywhere else. And we wouldn't do that if there's no cancer in the lymph node. That's the only way that this uh, cancer can spread is through the lymph tissue. Um, and so remember that mastectomy is, uh, again, removing the breast, at that point, radiation is determined by how large the cancer tumor, the cancer the tumor was, and how close it was to the thorax. If it's within three millimeters of the thorax, then uh, radiation and typically external beam radiation is going to be recommended at that point. Um, and typically, that radiation regimen is five days a week for six weeks, which is a lot of radiation. They are almost always going to experience some side effects of radiation from that intensive a um, round of radiation. And in this situation, the patient may also need to be on chemotherapy. Generally speaking, most surgeons are going to, and oncologists will be looking at the type of cancer because there are different types of breast cancers. There are some that are very aggressive and some that are very slow growing and what they call lazy tumors. And also your genetic disposition, but almost always if the chemo, uh, if the cancer has spread into the lymph nodes, then you will be a candidate for chemotherapy and that will be recommended. And remember that chemotherapy has a lot of side effects. I know I already talked about this once, but the things that you're likely to experience with chemotherapy right away, like from within the first few hours of getting chemotherapy, is severe nausea and vomiting. And then um, there's also some 
kind of delayed effects of chemotherapy. And those delayed effects are things like alopecia. This is where we're um, really messing with cell replication and um, chemotherapy indiscriminately affects all cells. And so it affects cells that um, these delayed effects are gonna be cells that have like a short replication time or a quick replication turnaround. So your GI cells are gonna be impacted. You're gonna develop that mucositis. You're gonna develop some bone marrow suppression. And all of these are typically gonna be systemic since this type of chemo especially would be given systemically almost always through a central venous access device since chemotherapy is considered a vesicant. Now, um, so what do you do? Alopecia, the patient's gonna be losing their hair. That is, you know, there are worse things that can happen, but that is hard for people to go through whenever they've lost their hair. People are, um, you know, concerned about their body image and concerned about how they're presenting themselves to the world. And so um, most women will like to wear head scarves, number one, because hair actually keeps your head warm. And so you do have an issue with your head being cold. That can help a lot. Um, and then some people might actually, might also opt for wigs as well. Um, with bone marrow suppression, you're looking at thrombocytopenia. The patient's gonna be at risk for bleeding and they're gonna need to be counseled on how to prevent bleeding. Cause once they do bleed, they're gonna have a really hard time creating that platelet plug. Um, neutropenia is decreased white blood cell. They're gonna be at risk for infection. You need to make sure that they know their temperature should never exceed 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, 100.4. Um, that could indicate an infection in a neutropenic patient, and then we're really going to be set up for sepsis. Um, you want to tell them, just like what we've been doing for the last year, social distance. Don't be around anyone who's been sick. Um, you have to be really careful, diligent hand washing, get your immunizations, um, and then with uh, neutropenia, we may also start them on that neupogen medication that will boost the production of white blood cells in patients receiving chemotherapy. So let's talk about preventing and treating colorectal cancer. The risk for colorectal cancer increases with patients who have a heavy red meat consumption, who uh, smoke and use alcohol regularly. And so we would definitely want to teach people to avoid heavy red meat consumption and stop smoking if they smoke. And that's true for any type of cancer. Um, colorectal cancer develops when the a tumor grows inside of the muscularis mucosa. And then it starts accessing lymph nodes and the vascular system, which then it can start spreading all over the body. Mainly, it will spread first into like organs um, that are in the abdomen, um, but it could certainly spread anywhere. Remember that um, this has a very insidious onset, and generally there's no symptoms until the uh, disease is quite advanced. And so... The symptoms that may develop are iron deficiency anemia from blood loss, and then um, some GI symptoms like changes in your bowel habits. You may also be able to see bright red blood in your stool, um, and uh, you may also experience hepatomegaly and ascites depending on whether there is metastasis to the liver. 
generally patients with colorectal cancer will experience fatigue and weight loss. And so remember that the reason, one of the reasons we do a colonoscopy and uh, it's the gold standard for diagnostics, but the reason that we do that is because colorectal cancer does have an insidious onset and because you're unlikely to experience any symptoms. So a colonoscopy should be able to identify those polyps that are developing in that um, mucosa muscularis while it's still early. And this is why we want people to have colonoscopies after the age of 50 um, regularly. So what they're doing in a colonoscopy is they are inserting a small scope into the patient's anus and then they go up the rectum and colon and they're looking and assessing the tissue for any abnormalities, like things like polyps. Um, and once they find it, the nice thing with the endoscopy or colonoscopy is that we would then be able to biopsy that tissue. And most of the time we're able to remove polyps completely during a colonoscopy um, because there's another device on it that uh, we can easily kind of capture and cauterize little polyps or abnormal tissues. And then once they're gone, we can send them for biopsy, but that would effectively cure early onset colorectal cancer. And so that's really helpful because then the patient doesn't have to have any kind of colostomy surgery or anything like that. So that's what we can do in a colonoscopy. Now, the thing with colonoscopy is that you have to do the bowel prep. And so the bowel prep generally is at least a liter of that uh, go lightly. Um, and so they're taking it and they're drinking it and it should basically clear out their entire GI system. And um, you'll know that it's prepped, that the bowel's prepped for the endoscopy whenever they are, um, basically their stool is completely clear or clear yellow. Um, and at that point, you know, you wouldn't want them really eating or drinking anything else. But remember that they're not necessarily on an NPO diet because they are required to, you know, ingest the scolightly uh, prep. Um, so let's see. Other things is if you have advanced cancer, colorectal cancer, um, like stage three is where you would really start seeing radiation. Stage two, you would see chemotherapy. Remember in stage two, we know that you have um, the cancer, you're positive for cancer, but you also have some development into the lymph tissue. And so in that situation, you would have to do um, chemotherapy. And then stage three would probably require radiation and chemotherapy as well. Um, and in stage four colorectal cancer, our shift really goes more towards palliative surgery and palliative, uh, palliative, palliative care in general is just improving symptoms and treating symptoms of the disease because we cannot cure it. And so we are just promoting comfort and providing pain relief until the patient passes away. This is different from hospice care, although it can overlap with hospice care. Hospice is where really we don't expect you to be living very much longer at all. So remember that people can live with palliative um, treatment for several weeks, several months, maybe even several years, depending on um, you know the nature of their cancer. If it's a very slow-growing cancer, then we would still want to treat symptoms and improve quality of life to the best of our ability. Um, so again, this is different than hospice. This is different than like end of life care 
so to speak, but it is uh, kind of concentrated on promoting pain relief and improving symptoms and quality of life. Thanks for listening to this podcast. And if you have any questions over the content, feel free to let me know. Thanks.